Hey everyone, and welcome to the 25th episode of the Liam McCollum Show. Today I'll be talking to Spike Cohen, the Libertarian Vice Presidential nominee. I wanna just hop into this interview like I did the last one, but we're gonna be going more in depth since the last interview was kind of just a breeze through all, all the issues with Joe. Have a little more time with Spike, so we're gonna talk about the issues, um, the philosophy behind libertarianism, and a little bit about his background. Vice Presidential Candidate Spike Cohen, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here, Liam. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Well, just to get into it, I had Joe Jorgensen on just a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about the issues. We kind of just sped through them all. And I wanted to take this opportunity to talk more about the philosophy of, lib of libertarianism and how you mm -hmm. got introduced to it. Can you give the audience a little bit about your background? It's pretty inspiring. Sure. So I actually started a web design company um, when I was uh, just before my 17th birthday. So this was back in 1999. And this kind of feeds into how I became a libertarian, too. Um, so I started my business and uh, two years later in 2001, 9-11 happened. And I bought into the government and media lie about about uh, 9-11 and about, the, you know, the whole thing. I, I bought the whole the whole lie that, you know, we needed to that, you know, the terrorists hated us for our freedoms. And that's why they attacked us on 9-11, because it was a symbol of attacking our freedom and that we needed to go around the world and 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 use whatever, you know, bomb and destabilize and invade countries to spread our peaceful, loving ways. And that, you know, we needed to, you know, create democracy and freedom around the world by destabilizing the world. And so, you know, I bought into that whole thing and there was uh, this annoying guy there named Ron Paul who kept saying that, you know, this was blowback for 9-11 or 9-11 was blowback for what, you know, what, what uh, the U.S. military did overseas. And he said, you know, imagine if the Chinese were, you know, treating us the way that we treat these foreign countries, how we would, you know, you'd want to fight back. And I'm like, screw you. You hate America. You don't know anything. What do you know? Screw you. And every year... Everything he said that would happen that year happened. And everything that the neocons told me would happen was just the opposite of what happened. We were hated more and more. We were spending trillions of dollars. Thousands of people were coming home in body bags and tens of thousands more were coming home with PTSD and traumatic brain injury. And they were committing suicide and getting addicted to drugs because of chronic pain and because of psychological trauma and not to mention the countless suffering, the immeasurable harm that was being done overseas. And uh, I really started to think, man, I, I think you might be right about this. At the same time, my business was growing and I was becoming pretty successful. And I saw what happens when you become successful. They take more and more and more and more and more of your money uh, and, and leave you in a situation where, you know, you, you couldn't do nearly as well as, uh, as you could do if they had just left you alone. And then I realized I was actually one of the lucky ones. I was in a good situation. I, 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 I was making decent money. I was being mostly just really inconvenienced, but there were people that were being thrown in cages. There were people that were being, you know, victimized and, and, and used as basically as chattel slaves in the prison system. There were people whose entire communities were being profiled on a constant basis by a, a militarized police state. So the combination of, you know, Ron Paul disabusing me of my status neocon bugaboos and then, you know, growing up and seeing the reality of how things really were moved me away slowly from, you know, being a neocon to eventually being more of a constitutionalist conservative type to being kind of a, you know, a conservatarian into eventually just being a straight up libertarian. And that's where I am now. Uh, three years ago, 
or actually four years ago, uh, I was diagnosed with MS and faced with that very stark reminder that we don't know what tomorrow brings. I decided to retire from web design and focus my life full time on my real passion, which is spreading the message of liberty around the world to a public that often has not heard our ideas, often has only heard a cultural conversation built around Democrats and Republicans arguing over how much bigger government should be, how much more control it should have over our lives, how much more reliant and subjected to it we should be instead of our ideas of whether government should even be involved in the first place and how much better we would do if we were left to our own devices and allowed to cooperate and compete with each other in a, in a voluntary way in the market. Mm-hmm. And um, now my, my MS has been, has been thankfully, has been very stable for the past few years. And I'm, I'm actually in better health now than I was when they, when they found out I had MS. But uh, what that did was it really it created this new reality for me that I wanted for, you know, however long I'm here and, and kicking, I wanted to be spreading a message of liberty. And to that end, I became the host of the Muddy Waters, uh, the host of my fellow Americans, the co-host of the Muddy Waters of Freedom and the co-owner of Muddy Waters Media. We have been sh- using uh, uh, entertainment and humor and goodwill to spread a message of libertarianism outside of libertarian circles, trying to get the normies and bring them in with humor and entertainment, uh, bring them into libertarianism. And, uh, you know, six months ago, I decided to run for a VP, uh, sort of leveraging what I had learned with Muddy Waters Media and with uh, with my business ownership in how to use empathetic and engaging and dynamic uh, engagement and messaging to be able to reach the public and bring them into the liberty movement. And on the strength of what I was able to show the party that I could do in a six-month period, they uh, they decided to uh, make me the VP nominee. So here I am. Yeah. And I want to talk more about that path, how you got to where you're at right now through campaigning. Mm-hmm. But before that, when I interviewed Joe, I kind of touched on the fact that libertarianism is more of a philosophy, whereas, you know, the other parties, they just vote on how they feel that day. And the people come to this philosophy from different points in their life, too. Um, mm-hmm. And I've seen that you actually have a religious background. Did your religion influence libertarianism at all? So I think if I look at my uh, at my faith, there's probably some things there. So I'm I'm I was I'm Jewish. I was raised a Messianic Jew and uh, certainly seeing the history of uh, how governments have treated Jews and how we have in the past been used as scapegoats for all of society's ills uh, whenever it was convenient to do so. Uh, it certainly makes you more sensitive to the idea of, of whether or not we should be beholden to a centralized authority that claims a monopoly on violence uh, because they often use it for the most marginalized group that they can as a scapegoat for everyone else uh, to you know put their blame on them, focus all their rage and and blame on them right. and uh, and not and not see who's actually causing the problems which is the people in power um, you know thankfully Jews are now in a position where we're not the scapegoats unfortunately we've just been replaced with other people. We've been replaced with Muslims. We've been replaced with immigrants. We've been replaced with the poor and the homeless and people of color and gender and sexual minorities and everything else. But the formula is still the same. Powerful people create problems and then blame it on those with the least power. Malcolm X said that if you'll, if you, uh, if you know, let yourself fall for the rope a dope, you'll end up in a situation where you love your oppressors and hate the oppressed of the Bible. I mean, if you look at, you know, what, what Jews call Tanakh and what Christians call the Bible, uh, the, you know, the story in, in the, the Old Testament, what you would call the Old Testament, where the uh, the Jews wanted a king. God said, you don't need a king. The king's going to 
you know, run you roughshod and do whatever he wants and force you to do things. And they're like, yeah, we want a king. Everyone else has a king. So they got a king. And then the rest of the Old Testament is basically how they regret how they had a king. Um, and so that's, you know, the situation we have now. When you demand to be ruled over, you're going to get what you want. And uh, and that's what we have. We have a system where two people, two groups of people claim that they are the sole people who should be able to rule over you. Uh, they tell you you have a, a democratic system where you can choose your rulers, but then they tell you you've got two choices and they both suck, but you got to choose from those two. That's not really a choice. That's a false choice. So, right. you know, that's so I guess it's I, I you know, I, I, I guess I don't really lean too much on my religion as why I believe what I do in terms of in terms of the liberty. But I guess there's certainly there's certainly um, there's certainly elements of it there. And in your introduction, you talked a little bit about um, how you have tried to convey the message to people outside of libertarianism through entertainment. Mm-hmm. And you ran with um, Vermin Supreme, and a lot of people know that name outside of libertarianism. <laughs> and and um, a lot of people, just to be fair, like did talk about it as a joke. You know, they looked at the Libertarian Party and they're like, oh, this is a joke. But, and I was a part of that camp originally, but as I've looked into you a lot more, I'm I'm loving this current ticket. Can you can you talk about those people who might say that you are a joke, you're an anarchist, you know, the, the satire and what what would you say to them? Well, there's two questions there. One is anarchy and one satire. So I'll start with the satire part first. Um, Vermin Supreme has figured out a way to reach out to people who don't want to hear from a politician. Something like 40 to 45 percent of eligible voters don't vote. They don't participate. They don't listen to politicians. They don't want to hear a thing about it. And if you listen to the reasons that they give as to why they don't participate, they're pretty libertarian reasons. They say this system isn't for me. You know, it doesn't even matter if you vote because of the same politicians are going to do whatever. It doesn't matter who you vote for. They're all going to do the same thing. They're all liars. You can't trust them. You can't trust anything from this government. This is very libertarian sounding stuff. And if we could reach them, a lot of them could become libertarians because they, we, they'd recognize, oh, wow, I do have a home. It's libertarianism. But they don't want to hear from us. They don't want to hear from anyone about anything political at all, ever. But if someone like Vermin can come and entertain them and they get that there's an underlying message, people get that satire has an underlying message. They get what that there's a, a greater point to this and they hear, and, but they're being entertained. So their cognitive defenses are down. They don't feel like they're being pandered or lied to. They're just being entertained. And over time, eventually they want to know more. What is this really about? And that's when you can hit them with the serious message. Vermin has done a fantastic job. We are grateful for the number of people that he has brought into libertarian message, into the libertarian movement in a way that only a satirist could. Um, and so we are grateful for that. We're grateful for his help on this campaign. Uh, Joe Jorgensen and I are running a campaign to you know, demonstrate to the American people that the Republicans and Democrats have had exclusive ownership of the every lever of power in this country for the past 160 plus years. They are fully and 100% responsible for every bad problem we're facing right now that's come from government. And common sense libertarian solutions are the only way out of those problems that they have created. And now on the anarchist point, can you talk about Oh, on the anarchy side, yeah. As I was saying that, I'm like, and there was a second part of that. So with anarchy, the logical conclusion of an an ideology, libertarianism that is based on the ideas of self-ownership, free market economics, uh, non-aggression, voluntary solutions, is a situation in which all goods and services and provision of any kind 
is provided within a free market by competing voluntary providers. That coercion has been removed and that you're simply having people choose within a bourse of people in the market uh, to get the services they want. Um, but that's not what we're running on. We're not running on libertopian anarchy, you know, end result, you know, end stage anarchy. Not at a time when right now the cultural conversation is whether we should move towards ever greater tyranny at twice the speed of sound or three times the speed of sound you know, at Mach 2 or Mach 3, instead, it makes sense to try to just change that cultural conversation towards liberty, to, to let's stop growing government, let's stop, you know, uh, stop relying on government because it's creating bad, inequitable and harmful outcomes. Let's move towards more, you know, voluntary solutions, taking the power out of the hands of the cronies and their favored, pandering, craven politicians and back in the hands of us, power to the people where it belongs. Um, that's what we're running on. We're running on specific things, ending the wars, ending the war on drugs, ending police brutality, uh, ending the gun war, um, ending you know, putting people in cages for victimless commerce and using them for slave labor, you know, ending these, you know, demonstrable systems of harm that are helping no one, uh, ending the government chokehold on health care that's driving up the cost and driving down the ability to get affordable access to the care that we all need, uh, ending the invo government involvement in education that's causing pricing to go through the roof and literacy rates to stay the same and the wages from higher education to not go up at all. Ending government involvement that is harmful and malignant and removing the the bad centrally planned, arbitrarily defined, crony friendly solutions and policies of the of the Democrats and Republic, Republicans and replacing them with common sense libertarian ones. And now a lot of people in the current riots and all these protests have or at least some of them have claimed to be anarchists. What makes the libertarian ideal of anarchy much different than the people in Chaz or CHOP? And what's your opinion of those people? So there's a few different things happening here, right? You have peaceful unarmed protesters that are showing up to protest police brutality and systemic racism and all the problems that they're facing. And they're being met with cops brutalizing them and putting them in cages and withholding their habeas corpus right to either be tried for something or let go. Uh, New York City is still holding people from over over two weeks ago now, uh, even though their constitution calls for, I believe, a 24-hour turnaround time on either being charged with something or let go, they're still not charged. They don't know what they're they, – they were just going down the street rounding people up, even like Uber delivery drivers, even reporters. There are people in the media who are still being held illegally. Um, and so when people who come peaceful – angry but peaceful and 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 unarmed and are treated that way oftentimes they will turn around and there will be blowback blowback against the the militarized police state and so a lot of these peaceful protests then turn into something they weren't originally intended to be because they've just had enough now what you have is the police have cordoned off the protesters in in relatively small corners of these various cities and, and areas and put all of their police personnel there with riot gear and you know tear gas and pepper ball guns and tasers and everything else while leaving the entire rest of the city wide open and so what you're seeing from the looters i haven't seen many looters saying i'm an anarchist you're seeing looters just looting because they can because they had nothing to do with the protest they have no concern about or they may have a concern about police brutality, but that's not why they're looting. They're looting because they know the police are preoccupied over here and, and leaving the entire city completely neglected. And that if anyone calls 911, no one's ever going to show up. And so they're taking advantage of it. Um, then you have a third group of people who are various uh, types of anarchists who, for example, in CHOP, 
who are taking that as an advantage to uh, an opportunity to declare that an autonomous zone or, or whatever. So there's a few different groups there. But the looters are the opportunists who are taking the cue from the police state that they're not going to do anything to stop them. Mm. And there's a reason for that, because what people are seeing right now, what a lot of people are seeing right now, they're not seeing the protesters being brutalized. They're seeing looting. They're seeing homes and businesses being destroyed. And they're saying, we need more police. We need to be safe. I'm worried for my family and my community. They need to do something. And the police go, yep, we're going to hire more officers and get even more military equipment. When the reality is this is happening because they derelicted their their duty. They they abdicated their responsibility and left it to no one. They just said, oh, we're going to be over here brutalizing protesters. Go have at it as you were. And so it is an intentional thing, I believe an intentional thing in order to, you know, create the public demand for even more militarization of the police and even more military, or even more police personnel in our streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the, the problem is the real problem is a police department that has been set up with no accountability uh, because of qualified immunity uh, and has been is been you know getting endless reams of of funding in the form of civil asset forfeiture where they can take money from people who haven't even been convicted of anything yet. And if those people are found not guilty or the charges are dropped, they still have to sue for their own stuff back, even though they were just found not guilty, which means they never should have had their stuff taken from them in the first place. Those programs would end. Uh, qualified immunity would end. The military surplus program, where not only are they dumping military equipment on these uh, police, but they're also giving the military training to use it, which means that their ongoing training is more and more militarized to not just use equipment, but that kind of mentality and tactics in using the equipment, which is making their mindset more and more military over time. That needs to end. We would end that program. We would end no-knock raids. We would end warrantless wiretapping and surveillance programs. We would end the war on drugs. Uh, we would use the Department of Justice to go after abusive government officials, politicians, and police officers, while uh, and also going after abusive de- departments with a, a history of abuse. But by removing qualified immunity, what happens is that now the police departments are making a cost-benefit analysis. Derek Chauvin, who killed George Floyd. He had 17 other complaints against him, including wrongful death complaints. He had murdered other people. And when the police department looked at him, when the Minneapolis police looked at his case, they'd say, he's not a good cop. He's doing a lot of bad stuff out here. But because of qualified immunity, it's not costing us anything. And if we try to remove him, we're now going to have to deal with the police unions. It's going to cost us a fortune to get rid of him and other cops like him. We have to keep these bad apples because... It's not costing us anything, and it will cost us a fortune to get rid of them. Ending qualified immunity turns that around. Now they can't afford to keep them. And now the police unions also cannot afford to keep them because they could be held liable too. If they keep defending, knowingly defending bad officers, they can be held too. So now everyone has a vested interest in in looking at bad cops and saying, get out of here. So no longer are good cops being punished. Now good policing is being incentivized. And now you can heal the rift between the police and the public, especially between the police and the most marginalized among us. Yeah, so that actually goes to a question that I was going to ask. Um, I was going to ask if the national government should intervene within local police departments, but I guess would your solution then be to actually remove the national government from those local police departments? Yes, federal defunding of the police. Policing is a community issue. 
It is not a federal issue. And when the federal government got involved with Joe Biden's tough on crime laws and Donald Trump's, you know, continuation of the militarization of the police, it's led to exactly what we have right now. And it's only going to get worse. It needs to end. The federal government should have never been involved in domestic policing. That is a community issue. Individual communities should be able to decide what their policing looks like and fund it locally. No more dumping tens of billions of dollars and military surplus and training and the war on drugs and all of these things to make the police ever more and more militarized and change their role from, when you see a police officer, you should know that they're only there to protect your life, your rights, and your property. And right now, that's a small part of what their ongoing job is. Their ongoing job is enforcing the war on drugs and revenue collection, giving people a hard time, you know, giving them fines and citations over, you know, they're, they're engaging in a war on busted tail lights, <laughs> and then using those busted tail lights when they pull people over to say, I think I might smell drugs here, and then giving them a hard time based on that. It all needs to end. They are they are desensitizing us to the idea that when we see police, we need to feel fear. So when you see a cop, and a lot of people see a cop, they go, oh, "Am I doing anything wrong? Uh, do I got anything in my pockets? Uh, is my is my blinker on? Uh, did I run that that red light? Uh, oh man, did I did, did I, I know I I know I paid my uh, registration, but did I put put the tag on, or is that still on the counter? That that anxiety that they are driving us to have is intentional because they want us to have a laser focus on fear of uh, positions of people and positions of authority and also to be desensitized to the idea that it's our fault, that we're the criminals. This hall monitor mentality that starts in our schools. It starts in our schools that, oh, you wanna use the bathroom? You have to get permission. Are you out here in the hallway going to the bathroom without permission? It starts there and it continues on as adults. We are conditioned that we're bad and that if we, if we mess up, if we make even the smallest mistake, we're gonna do hard, we're gonna either have to pay big fines or lose our license or go to jail. And meanwhile, the people who write these laws live like absolute heathens. We hear about everything from them going to pedophile island to you know being involved in drug-fueled orgies and everything in between. And yet they're telling us that if you're if you you know left your blinker on while you were driving, you're gonna get hit with a $50 fine. If you forgot to put your seatbelt on, you're gonna get hit with a $200 fine. If you ran a red light, you're getting a hundred dollar fine. If your tail lights out, you're getting a hundred dollar fine. You know, you're and, and for a lot of people that are that are not wealthy, that you know are, are don't have much, that ruins them for weeks. It might make them lose their job because they got held up for some stupid nonsense that had nothing to do with anyone's safety. So we need to heal the rift between the police and the public by removing the federal government. The federal government, this is an co- ongoing story. Federal government gets involved in something that is not its role, makes it worse, and then uses that, that thing becoming worse as an excuse to continue getting more involved. Education, healthcare, policing, immigration, war, all of these things are government do, creating problems and then using those problems as an excuse to get even more involved. So you actually touched on immigration there, and I didn't ask Joe about that. Um, what is your guys' position on immigration then? In, in, in general, our role is to return government to its constitutionally defined limitations. The founders intended for us to be free to come and go as we please, and it is enshrined in the Constitution. It's Article 1, uh, Section 9, I believe, that actually says the government cannot restrict immigration. 
<laughs> so not only is it not mentioned, which means in the, according to the Tenth Amendment, uh, it would mean that according to the Tenth Amendment, if it's not specifically mentioned as a power of government, which it isn't, then that would mean it would be left to the states and to the people. But it actually says that it can't restrict the, 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 the flow of, of people. I forget exactly how it's worded. And in fact, in the Declaration of Independence, one of the reasons that they gave declaring independence was that King George was restricting trade and immigration. So the history of our country is one of saying, come and go as you wish. If you want to become a citizen, there's a process to go through. But if you just want to come here and work or bring your family or marry someone, whatever, come and go as you please. And, and, and citizens, come and go as you please. And if you look at when they first started introducing immigration laws, it was due to fear of a Chinese people taking over and a Democrat-packed Supreme Court decided to finally allow the government to restrict immigration using a very skewed definition of the word of the term commerce, which they've since used for the war on drugs, for uh, gun, all the gun laws, uh, for Obamacare, and pretty much every other infringement you can think of from the federal government. It comes from them saying, well, yeah, I guess technically that's commerce. It started with immigration. The surveillance and police state that has had to be created to have even remotely closed borders is already untenable. If you wanna get a job, you have to get federal permission. You have to go through the E-Verify program. If in many states, if you want to uh, sign a lease or get a mortgage or buy a property or uh, have, have utilities put in your name, you have to go through the E-Verify system. You have you know federal raids on businesses for hiring the wrong people. You have poor people fleeing destabilization in their countries who cannot get their documentation, who come here for asylum and are told, no, you have to turn around and go back you don't have your paperwork. That is not what the founders intended. And yet we still have millions of people here illegally. The kind of police state that we would have to create in order to effectively keep out everyone and remove the ones that are already here is a police state that is hard to fathom in our minds. It's even more intrusive than the one that we've seen over the past couple months telling us whether we can leave our houses or not. And you did mention commerce in there and you kind of referenced, you know, the interstate commerce and all that stuff within the Constitution. And I heard something earlier this week that, um, you know, when they use the, the term regulate within the Commerce Clause, they actually mean to make regular. And what I find is um, exactly right. And what I find is that, you know, you and Joe will be considered isolationists for your position. Um, but I think it was Frederick Bassiat who said that, you know, um, all of these protectionists, all of these restrictions are actually isolationists in essence. Exactly. I'm going to start taking you along. I'm going to take you. When someone says, oh, aren't you being an isolationist? I say, listen, ask, ask Liam. Liam's got this <laughs> handled. I'm going to go over here and kiss this baby and shake this hand. Right. Um, no, you're you're 100% correct. Isolationism is telling the people in your presumed jurisdiction that you're going to shut them off to everything, to trade, to migration, to travel, to you know every aspect of what they can and can't do. You're going to sanction every other country on earth. That's isolationism. The U.S. is increasingly isolated in this paternalistic role that our government has created, where we have occupied most of the world and provide them with their defense, which makes them hate and resent us in this sort of like codependent parent-child relationship we have with other countries, while they simultaneously use all their tax dollars to fund these lavish social social safety nets because they don't really need a military because there's the freaking foreign one already occupying them. So what the hell do they need one for? And they you know they know we're not coming to, to bomb them or anything else because uh, they're not brown or poor. And so they're not worried about it. And uh, the, the ones that are brown and poor have no real wherewithal to stop us either. And increasingly, we're 
hated. And I, as a former neocon, I remember hearing you're hated. I'm like, oh, of course they hate us. They hate us because they ain't us. No, they hate us because our government is destabilizing their entire country. If you live in the Middle East and you see what's happening in Yemen, which does not get talked about enough, there is a modern genocide that your government, our government is engaging in to help Al Qaeda. Let me say that again. Our government is engaging in genocide against an entire country, bombing, using the the Saudi government, handing bombs off to the Saudi government and Al Qaeda to bomb civil infrastructure, water treatment plants, power plants, uh, uh, food uh, production facilities, farms, the stuff that people need to be able to live a life at all, to be able to, to function and survive. Not bombing military installments, bombing the civil infrastructure, roads and bridges, so that people are increasingly destitute and dying and starving to death. Why? To help Al Qaeda, why? because they don't like Iran. 250,000 people dead, including 80,000 children. That is the solution that comes from not being an isolationist that is happening as a result of the bad foreign policy and planning of the Democrats and Republicans. That actually goes to one of my listener questions. Someone was asking if your campaign believes that there is any case for foreign intervention anywhere in the world right now. If we are being invaded or there is, you know, an imminent aggression happening, then it makes sense for us to have a military or, or, or martial response both to that invasion or attempted invasion and possibly a punitive immediate response uh, for that happening. And that's it. The idea that the military should be used as an arm of U.S. government foreign policy of how other countries should be interacting with each other is terrible and it doesn't work. This world policeman thing does not work. It never did work. What it does is it externalizes it externalizes the military to be able to do the bidding of very powerful people here and abroad. And it, it, it takes our loved ones who signed up who swore to uphold and defend the Constitution and to protect America from uh, threats both foreign and domestic, to use them essentially as mercenaries for the most terrible people on earth, both here and abroad, cronies and, and, and sociopathic politicians and foreign dictators and leaders of terror groups that we're currently allied with for some reason. And, and, and you know, the, the absolute worst people, dictators and tin pot uh, potentates and, and, and monarchs, monarchs of foreign lands and all of the worst people that you can possibly think of. We are sending our loved ones to fight and kill and potentially die for and come back either in a a coffin draped in a flag or with PTSD or just with just a general uneasy sense that something they did didn't quite line up with what they were told that they were signing up for. And all of that needs to end. Whatever military we need to keep, Joe Jorgensen talks about, you know, withdrawing the troops from from foreign occupations, ending the wars, and making America into one giant Switzerland, armed and neutral. Switzerland, Switzerland's economy, by the way, one of the best in the world, one of the highest per capita incomes in the world. And Switzerland has not engaged in a war in centuries. They have stayed neutral. 
And there's no reason we can't do the same. Switzerland keeps a sufficient militia force to protect against invasion. That coupled with the fact that everyone wants to trade with Switzerland has put them in a position where no one wants to invade them. Same thing here. No one wants to invade us. No one wants to invade us. There is way too much money being made trading with us. And the terror groups that attack us, they're only attacking us because the US military started it in their country. It's blowback for what the, the, our military has robbed us to pay for, not to help us, but to keep us scared and to keep them and their favorite cronies in power and to keep this you know, US government uh, you know, hegemonic uh, uh, structural dominance of entire regions. Why? It doesn't help anyone. Yeah. And for anyone who says that it isn't blowback, they should go read Osama's letter to America because, I mean, it's Thank public. You. It's public. Every single one of these countries. Our government relies on us accepting their propaganda that they feed us from their crony corporate media. Osama bin Laden, if you read what he has said, has never said, I'm doing this so I can spread radical Islam around the world and kill all the non-Muslims. And that's what we're going to. No, no. He has said flat out, I did this for the same reason that I fought against the Soviets in Afghanistan, which Reagan helped me with. (laughs) I'm doing this to free our lands of foreign intervention and to blow back and to, to, you know, exact some revenge against the people in Wall Street who benefited the most from it. Now, were those people, did they deserve that? No, of course not. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that this is the natural conclusion of a government victimizing billions of people. They're going to hate you, and some of them are gonna have the nerve to try to hurt you. It has to end. It just has to end. Yeah, so another one of my um, listener questions is about Citizens United and dark money. And since you kind of talked about um, corporatism right there, what is the libertarian Mm -hmm. position about um, Citizens United? So the problem, we are told that the problem is that people are able to use their money as they wish in politics. That's not the problem. Our First Amendment allows us to uh, to lobby and express our grievances as we see fit. The problem is the imbalance of power. And that imbalance of power has been created by a government that has created itself as the centrally planning authority for the entire economy, which means that if I am a billionaire and I want to remain such and become even wealthier, become a mega billionaire, it's a loser's game for me to try to continue providing value to the market. That's not where the real money is. The real money is in getting a few favored crony politicians, Republicans and Democrats, just a couple hundred of them and get them in the right positions and hand them the legislation and regulations that I want them to pass and tell them when I need bailouts and tell them when I want no bid contracts <laughs> and tell them what policies I want them to pursue so I can be get wealthy and tell them what regulations to put in place to make sure that smaller competitors are never able to rise up and, and disrupt the market and take any of my market share. That's where the money is. So you have to follow the money. Right. The problem isn't that you know we're able to lobby Congress with whatever money we have. The problem is that there's so much power in Congress that it makes sense for the wealthy to just do nothing but lobby them instead of actually being benevolent providers to the market for their own self-interest. You remove the Fed, you remove the, the big government agencies, the alphabet soup agencies, you remove those regulatory burdens and make the consumer the king again. And that interest 
will flow back to the consumer where it belongs. Those special interests will go right back to where the money and power is, the people, when it's decentralized. When we say, when people say power to the people, that's power to the people. We're moving the regulatory burdens that do nothing but prop up the cronies at everyone else's expense. We're moving those so that we can disrupt the market and move ahead and thrive. And so that people can braid hair and cut hair without having to run up thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars in debt to get some kind of an arbitrary college degree because of the well-established beauticians and beautician uh, chains, you know, national beautician chains that want to make sure no one can compete with their market. And so they drive, make it so that people can't compete. This is at every level of society that this is happening. We remove those burdens and now suddenly there's not much of a market for trying to buy politicians, at least not to this level, because they're not involved anymore. Right. They, got, they got to patronize you now. They want to get money. They got to make you happy now. They have to make the consumer happy. That's how it works. That's how you fix this. Yeah. Nobody seems to talk about, you know, these regulatory cartels built of, you know, um, these exact companies, you know, the companies who sit and make the legislation, they're Mm -hmm. part of the companies. They go in and out. And, you know, my, my family actually is they for people who don't believe it like my family um sees this firsthand they're they're in the trucking industry and you know the dot with all of the regulations oh man yeah with all the regulations that these big trucking companies can handle Mm -hmm. you know yep this company and 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 it's and and it's a revolving door they go from being the head the lobbyists for these big trunk trucking companies then they go and work their way up the dot and then they come back as the executives of those trucking companies and then they retire so that the next generation of cronies can work their way back and forth it's a huge revolving door and it's all built around so you you know better than i do or as well as I do, exactly what I'm talking about. Right. If you want to be a trucker in this country, unless you are working for one of the bigs, for for you know Swift or uh, 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 gosh, they're they're all escaping me now. The only <laughs> one I could think of is Swift. But you know, working for one of these big companies, you're screwed. If you want to be an owner operator, you are utterly screwed. Just the state to state licensing you have to do to go up I-95 to to take a boat from you know Fort Lauderdale or or the Keys up to you know where, where the, the people live in Maine or Massachusetts, you have to spend thousands of dollars. You can't afford it. Right. So instead, you go and work for someone else and they make 80% of the profit. Right. And they give you pennies. Exactly. And, and by the way, that's what the left gets right. They get, the left gets this system of patronage between big business and big government. What they don't get is that their, their big government solutions are just gonna make it worse. And what the right gets is that you can't trust trust government to, you know, to 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 regulate things. But what they often don't get is that big business is every bit in 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 bed with them. So that's something that they both get one part of it right because that's what they're told to. The Democrats tell the people on the left to hate the uh the you know the the, the big businesses and the Republicans tell the people on the right uh, to hate the big government, it's all the same thing. It's all a bad centrally planned system of aggression. And we as libertarians, we know that aggression is wrong, not just because it's wrong to harm people and take their stuff, but it doesn't work well. If I can take from you and everyone else watching and listening to this whenever I want, I'm not going to be a good steward of what I have. Right. I'm not going to make good decisions with it because I can just take more and do whatever I want. I can spend it how I wish. I can make the stupidest decisions with it because I can just take more from you whenever I want to. And y'all aren't going to be quite as good stewards of what you have because you know I can come and take it from you at any time. So you're just spending it while you have it. And all of these things we're talk- 
talking about are nothing more than a situation in which Republicans and Democrats have claimed the exclusive authority to take from all of us as and whenever they see fit. And that's why it leads to the harmful and inequitable and abusive and arbitrarily defined and crony friendly situations that we have as a result. Right. And I think the fallacy that props up both sides in their arguments, you know, the Dem- the Democrats will say, you know, we need more government or Republicans will, will say, you know, sometimes they even say that what we have is great. The fallacy behind that is that they all think that we do have capitalism. We do have a free market, you know. Yep. Um, and and that, we, we, we have we have what the Marxists would call state capitalism. Right. We do not have a free market. We do not have free market capitalism. We have a state imposed, centrally defined. We have when the when the when the left, when the communists talk about capitalism, we have what they call capitalism. Owners of capital using the state as an apparatus to force us all to be their patrons instead of the, the reverse, where they should be our patrons because we're the consumer. That's what we propose. That's the free market capitalism that, you know, that uh, 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 libertarians and some conservatives propose. Mm-hmm. And, and But more importantly, whether it's capitalism or not capitalism, it's not a free market. It is a centrally planned market. Right. And we can all agree on that. Yeah. And that actually goes to my next point. Um, you mentioned the Federal Reserve a little bit earlier, and I didn't get the chance to ask Joe about her position on this, but um, would you guys end the Fed? Yes. Joe's position is to audit the Fed and then end it. Um, and the audit is so that people can see just how disgusting of a system it is. What they'll see is that it's impossible to audit it. And if there's an organization that cannot be audited, well, why does it have control of our financial situation? Right. Here's the problem with the Fed. Let's look at the timeline here. 1913, the Fed is introduced. 1914, World War I. And we haven't not been at war since. There was a very brief period of time between the Depression and World War II that we weren't at war, even though actually technically our involvement in World War II started a couple of years earlier with the Lend-Lease program. Um, but so there was a very brief period of time that we aren't at war. Ever since World War II started, we've been at war ever since. We have been in a, in a stage of occupation and invasion and destabilization and bombing and raids of someone at some point in perpetuity since then. And that is as a result of the, of the Federal Reserve. So is the war on drugs. So is the, uh, you know, the, the imprisonment of people to use as chattel slaves for the, the benefit of multi-billion dollar for-profit private uh, 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 prison labor contractors. All of that is built around the Fed. Why? Because they know that the American people would never agree to have their taxes increased to directly pay for this stuff. They'd have to raise our taxes to like 80, 85% to pay all this stuff off from the beginning. We'd never agree to it, especially for this. They'd say, oh, we need to raise your taxes 85% so we can engage in war around the world and impose a militarized police state on you and disproportionately harm marginalized communities and put people in cages for you know not hurting anyone and, and, and engaging in commerce that we decided should be illegal for some reason and uh, you know and, and taking over your healthcare system and making it unaffordable and taking over your education system and making your children less literate and taking over your higher education system and making that unaffordable and uh, you know making sure that your wages stay low we need to tax you real high for that we'd say no screw you you can't create increase our taxes for that. But with the Fed, 
they don't have to do that. All they have to do is have the Fed print out endless trillions of Federal Reserve notes that they then turn around and hand off. They do two things with it. They hand some of it off to their favorite cronies right off the bat, you know, in the form of all these bailouts. And then the rest of it, they give to the they loan to the government in the form of buying trillions of dollars worth of Treasury bonds, which we then have to pay off with interest every time, every day more 40-year treasury bonds every day is yet another debt that has to be paid off by us, our children, their children, and maybe even their children with interest. And even worse, in printing out all those endless streams of Federal Reserve notes and inflating the monetary supply without adding any additional value, it reduces the value of all of the reserve notes that we have in our pockets and our wallets and our bank accounts that we are forced to use to pay for everything because the federal government has assumed a central monopoly on the issuance and distribution and control of currency. Right. It is a system designed to make sure it is a game of monopoly and they're the banker, but they're also playing as one of the players. And so they can just print out endless monopoly notes and for and then when we say well can we get some monopoly notes too they go no you got to pull yourself up by your bootstrap now of course they don't tell you that the bootstrap license is fifty thousand dollars they tell you you're lazy they tell you you're entitled they tell you that you know the world doesn't owe you anything and yet they're living off of our wealth and they're they're doing it in the most insidious and disgusting way a way that we don't even recognize what they're doing and then they come to us and go hey look we need to raise your taxes just to pay the interest on the debt. Well, what's all this debt from? Well, it doesn't matter. It's already run up. So we would end the Fed. Yeah. Joe, Joe Jorgensen would end the Fed, which does two things. It well, it does three things. It ends the boom bust cycle. It ends the uh, it ends the you know massive cronyism that comes as a result of people just being able to go up to the Federal Reserve trough and get as much money as their favorite politicians will give them. Uh, and it also actually does four things. The third thing that it does is it ends the empire. It ends the 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 prison pr- uh, prison to police industrial complex and the the militarized police state. It ends the war on drugs. But then what it also does is it makes your money stop losing value. It makes it so that over time with competing providers who have a vested interest in your currency gaining values so that you'll continue to use your their, their currency instead of one of the competitors' currency, you actually gain value over time. Your wealth gains value just by you owning it, not even by investing it, but just by holding it, holding it with using someone else's currency and the cost of living actually goes down or at least doesn't go up over time. Because now the people who are giving in control of your currency, instead of having a vested interest in devaluing it, have a vested interest in it gaining value. So yes, that's how we will handle that. Right, and for people who might not, you know, believe that it's as malicious as it sounds, just look at all these legal tender laws. You know, I, you can't even you can't even trade gold. Yep. So, but yeah, here's- it's all right there. Right. It's all right there. Anytime anyone has tried to get to subvert the system of currency, they get the book thrown at them. Look at Ross Ulbricht with Silk Road. They didn't care he was selling on drugs. They cared that he came up with a free market based on Bitcoin. <laughs> that was their concern. Right. So now people sell drugs all the time and they don't they don't hit them as hard as they hit him. Right. Exactly. So now I have another listener question and it's a it's asking about executive power in general. Um, what do you guys think about executive orders? Well, you know, the thing is, Congress has so abdicated their responsibility in the creation of all these alphabet soup agencies, which 
to then have basically unlimited regulatory authority, which essentially makes them the legislators for that specific sector that they've been put in control of by Congress, that now the, the executive branch has way more authority than was intended. The executive branch was designed to execute the immediate year-to-year and month-to-month orders of Congress using the money that they were given by Congress, and that's it. This thing where the the federal the 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 you know the White House the executive branch has like almost more than half of the overall power and control in D.C. with the rest of it divvied out between the uh, the legislature and the judiciary that was not what was intended. It was not intended for Congress and the Supreme Court to be bit players to the president and these endless agencies. Now the silver lining there is that when a libertarian gets elected and Joe Jorgensen is now president, she's able to very quickly undo a lot out of stuff without even having to look at Congress. <laughs> the war on drugs ends without us even having to sniff their way. The wars overseas end immediately. The, the, the warrantless surveillance programs, all that stuff ends. Uh, it, it, the war, uh, the, I already said the war on drugs. Qualified immunity, police brutality, the 1033 military surplus program, all this stuff ends because they've been given so much authority over being able to decide these things. Uh, so the flip side is that long before we have to go to Congress to repeal some of these bad laws, we can just decline to enforce them or, or reschedule stuff or, or or declare that this need is no longer there or just unstaff the agency and refuse to hire anyone else. Right. So there's a lot of things that Joe will be able to do before we even have to walk over to Congress. And the beauty of that is when the American people see the immediate stark benefits of what she's already done in the executive office, that puts us in a tremendous position to use that momentum in the bully pulpit to then go to Congress and say, so you want to come along with us to keep making this better or do you want to try to take us back to what everyone hates? And uh, I think that's going to be a very powerful argument for a lot of Republicrats who are going to viscerally hate us <laughs> to go along with it for no other reason than to keep their, their offices and not get replaced. Right. So I know that um, we have to finish up soon, but I have one more mm-hmm. a listener question sure. about whistleblowers of classified okay. programs. What do you feel? How do you feel about them? Let them all go. Uh, 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 Julian Assange, reality winner, uh, Chelsea Manning. Oh gosh, I know I'm forgetting one right now. Please help me. Who's who's the one I'm forgetting right now? Snowden. Snowden, Edward Snowden. I, I see. That's <laughs> that's how many of these interviews I do a day. Uh, Edward Snowden and countless others whose names we don't even know. Uh, they will all be let go. And in fact, some of them, because they've been so proficient at finding government secrets, we'd probably bring them on. I'm sure Joe would want to bring some of them on as consultants for how other things can be broken up in the same fashion. Um, but, you know, Edward Snowden uh, is a hero who let us know that the government is watching every single thing we do. And they tried to deny it. And now we know that it's the truth. Julian Assange is basically a journalist. Right. American journalists get you know, illegal stuff handed to them secretly, uh, you know, from foreign governments all the time. Foreign journalism would not exist if it wasn't for leaks to the press. Mm-hmm. That's literally all he did was he took a leak from the press. It was just, you know, it was some incredibly sizable ones. Right. Uh, reality winner, Chelsea Manning, all these people, uh, Chelsea's already out, but her, her, her record would be expunged. Um, reality winner would be freed. Um, all of the whistleblowers and the and the, and the people that are spreading the truth, all of them would be let go. Ross Ulbrich, anyone, any of the victims of the war on drugs would also be let go. Great, great to hear. And now um, to finish up here, uh, mm-hmm. 
what would you say to people who claim that a third party vote is just a vote for Donald Trump or Biden? And then with that, can you kind of give your pitch, um, just a summarized pitch for voting Mm -hmm. um, Joe and Cohen? And then we can let you go. Sure. So, you know, we often hear it's a wasted vote. If I vote for you, Donald Trump could win. If I vote for you, Joe Biden could win. So basically what you're being told is that if you don't vote for one of these people, you're going to get one of the other. You're going to get one of them. But also, if you vote for someone else, you're going to get one of them. That makes no sense. And even worse, they're saying, you know, your vote is thrown away by voting third party. I would argue that voting for the same people who have created these problems and who are telling you yet again, four years later, that only they can solve them when they're the ones who created them and have continued to make them worse and have done nothing to solve them, that's a vote thrown away. That is continued diminishing returns where every single election cycle, you're gonna get two ever ever worsening choices, one of which you'll be convinced, you'll be tried to tell is, is a little bit better than the other one. But they're always worse and worse and worse. We see people who said Bush was Hitler and now they're saying, oh, I wish I had George Bush as an option. I'd vote for him. Oh, I wish I had John McCain as an option. They'd vote for him. You know, in 10 years, they're going to be saying, oh, I wish I had Donald Trump as an option or or Joe Biden as an option. Mm -hmm. This is what they do. They give you worse and worse and more terrible choices. That is the vote thrown away. Voting for a viable option to change everything is a vote for a libertarian. That's not a vote thrown away. A vote for Joe Jorgensen is a vote for the wars to end and the troops to come home and the healing to begin. A vote for Joe Jorgensen is a vote for police brutality to end and for bad police to be removed from the force and good police to be uh, to be encouraged and to be uh, incentivized and for the, the rift between the police and the public, especially the most marginalized among us, to be finally healed. A vote for Joe Jorgensen is a vote for your full right to keep and bear whatever arm you wish to be fully defended and affirmed. A vote for Joe Jorgensen is a vote for government to be removed from healthcare so that it can be affordable and accessible. Again, a vote for Joe Jorgensen is a vote for your education decisions to be taken out of the hands of the politicians and the bureaucrats and the cronies and put back in the hands of you and your children's teacher. A vote for Joe Jorgensen is a vote for the uh, war on the border and migration to end and for the children to be set free from the camps. A vote for Joe Jorgensen is a vote for you to trade with whatever trading partner you wish. A vote for Joe Jorgensen is a vote for the regulatory burdens that have driven jobs out of this country to be removed so that new competitors can come in and disrupt the market and create new jobs and some of those old jobs can come back too, and we can have more st- uh, ability to uh, be entrepreneurs and to you know have many different uh, options of people serving us as consumers. A vote for Joe Jorgensen is a vote for a world in which we are freer and happier and safer and healthier, and in which the future for our children is far brighter than anything that the Republicans or the Democrats have even pretended that they plan to do. And with your support and your vote, Joe Jorgensen will do all of the things that we've said and even more. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Spike. Thank you to uh, JOJ2020.com. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you want to join our team, uh, JOJ2020.com. 
and uh, you can fill out our volunteer form and join our team. And if you're able to, we would greatly appreciate any contribution you can make. There's a big uh, donate button there. We would greatly appreciate any donation you can make. And we have a promotion. It is the 38 for Spike promotion. Yesterday was my birthday. Uh, I turned 38 years old. So if you go to 38forspike.com, we are asking anyone uh, who would like to, who has been moved by what I have to say, if you can donate $38 or really any any amount that you want, but 38 is a nice amount, uh, to donate uh, to the campaign. We would greatly appreciate it. 38forspike.com. And thank you, Liam, for your time. I yeah, really appreciate you. it. And happy birthday. Hey, thank you. I appreciate that, man. Have a good night. It's the weekend, we can let go. It's the full send, it's the get go. It's the get go, get go. Still not as mean as a bank account screen on. Not really, though. You would probably tell it to me when I don't have a lot. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. It was super interesting. Um, he's a great guy. And, you know, I think both Joe and um, Spike have a great message. They're running on a great campaign. and. In 2016, I will admit I was a conservative. I always thought that I would vote for Donald Trump in 2020. And here we are, this provided nothing horrible or, you know, 2020 doesn't continue to be a mess. I will be voting for Joe and Spike in November. If you guys wanna contribute to the campaign or if you guys wanna keep following, I do intend on informing you guys a little bit more about libertarianism if you um if you guys are interested in this uh i will also post some links below so that you can donate to the campaign or join the campaign i'll also link to my interview with joe jorgensen in case you missed it and you guys can check out any of my previous interviews they're all related to this i intended on interviewing people from you know different perspectives and you know they're always welcome to come on if they want but i i fear the more open i the more open i become with my political views it starts to close doors um not a lot of democrats not a lot of republicans want to come on and talk about um issues with the libertarian and i think you know we see (laughs) we're actually sitting and seeing these polls it's the first time since 1900 where registered independents actually have surpassed the amount of registered republicans and republicans and democrats they haven't gone down drastically um you're actually starting to see more people register and all of these articles they make the trend line gold which is pretty ironic yet they don't mention libertarianism in their articles and you know why would they if if they were to acknowledge this party if they were to acknowledge this philosophy they'd basically be conceding you know they'd be conceding something over to them they'd be acknowledging that they actually do have a message that people are listening to them and why why do that um why give them that power um we'll see how this turns out uh there are some other things I want to address about the third party thing, you know, um, for all the people who do say, you know, uh, if if you say you're going to vote third party and they say, well, um, it's just a throwaway vote, you know, you're just throwing your vote away, like we talked about in the interview, just tell them, well, that's just assuming that I would have voted for the other two candidates in the first place. If I don't for, vote for these two, I'm not going to vote for anyone. I mean, it's the truth, 40, I believe it's 40%, maybe even 60 don't vote. And that's registered voters. They don't even vote in elections because they don't care. They don't like politics or they don't have a candidate. 
that they relate to. So that's just one of the arguments, but you also have to realize that we do have an electoral college for a reason. And even if there is a popular vote, it's still, even if the popular vote isn't isn't Spike or Joe, um, the electorate can, they can vote for Jorgensen and Cohen. Um, we saw this in 2016. The electorate did not want Hillary in office and they wanted to kind of disrupt the environment. So they elected Donald Trump. And that's totally possible. If, if the electorate decides that Donald Trump and Biden are two sides of the same coin, they can, especially if the states permit the electorate to vote against the popular vote within their state, the electorate can vote for whoever they like. And, you know, some of them might even decide the day of election day. So, you know, those are just two arguments that you can use um, if, if people pin you down that way. Um, but yeah, I, I do want to continue to talk about libertarianism. But yeah, I hope you guys are enjoying these, these interviews. My next interview is going to be about Native American issues, actually, and it's pretty close to home. They've been affected pretty heavily by um, the coronavirus and the economic situation going on. So I bring someone on to talk about that. And then I'm also planning on doing some commentary episodes in the future. So so if you like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or SoundCloud. Give me five stars, subscribe, like, whatever, and come back next time. Thank you.